Hey friends, quick shout out to our latest Patreon supporters, Julia and Keegan. They joined the Future Hindsight Civics Club. For only $6 a month, you can gain access to member-only Civics Club info from our guests on how you can get active in political engagement. You'll get early access to our episodes, ad-free, and extended versions of our interviews. Go to patreon.com backslash future hindsight right now and join. Thank you for supporting the show. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guests today are Theda Scotchpole and Caroline Turvo. Together, they edited Upending American Politics, polarizing parties, ideological elites, and citizen activists from the Tea Party to the anti-Trump resistance. Theda Scotchpole is the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University. Her research focuses on U.S. social policy and civic engagement in American democracy, including changes since the 1960s. She was awarded the Johann Skidder Prize in political science for her visionary analysis of the significance of the state for revolutions, welfare, and political trust, pursued with theoretical depth and empirical evidence. Caroline Turvo is a research editor at Harvard. This episode is about grassroots organizing on the right and the left, and how these groups impact politics on the state and national levels. We rely on national surveys that pose questions to disconnected people all over the country and then add up the results by race or gender or whether people are liberal or conservative. But it doesn't tell us very much about the capacity of various kinds of people to work together to affect an outcome. So we, in our work, start with the idea that looking at the connections, the networks among people, looking at organized groups that sustain their efforts over time, that that's the best way to get a handle on what's likely to happen. We discuss the patterns of organizing in Tea Party and resistance groups, the depth of civic engagement across all areas in the United States, and also the kinds of organizing that supported Donald Trump to win the White House. Let's listen in. Thank you, Theta, for joining us. Glad to be here. And thank you, Caroline, for joining us as well. Thanks for having us, Mila. We're interested today in how groups or movements acquire political power. And in your book, Upending American Politics, you analyzed elite and grassroots efforts on both the right and the left in U.S. politics. In this book, you argue that politics is best understood as organized teamwork. What does that mean in practice? I think a lot of times we take shortcuts to try to understand American politics. We uh, rely on national surveys that pose questions to disconnected people all over the country and then add up the results by race or gender or whether people are liberal or conservative. But it doesn't tell us very much about the capacity of various kinds of people to work together to affect an outcome. So we, in our work, start with the idea that looking at the connections, the networks among people, 
looking at organized groups that sustain their efforts over time, that that's the best way to get a handle on what's likely to happen. And that's especially true in U.S. politics because it's not one big national contest, is it? It's a state-by-state -state contest, and the president can win office even if he falls millions of votes short if he gets a few thousand extra in particular states. I think what readers would be maybe pleasantly surprised to find in this book is that we both pay attention to national trends and developments in particular states that happen against the backdrop of national trends and also themselves drive certain national trends. I am a native North Carolinian and the research for the chapter on North Carolina is in part a product of travels that I did across the state for several weeks. I really enjoy telling the story of one trip that I took out to Western North Carolina, which is a pretty rural place. My chapter looks both at Tea Party networks that have been in existence since 2009 and at new resistance group networks that have popped up since the November 2016 election. One of my favorite anecdotes is that the local Tea Party likes to meet at IHOP. So I came from the Tea Party meeting at IHOP and drove across the street to go to the craft brewery where the local resist group was writing postcards to their Republican senators. I actually got to speak with some of these activists in their group meetings with their communities and hear both about their activity and how they were thinking about American politics. And to have the contrast in the same community was incredibly interesting. So what did you discover then from one meeting to the other in terms of the qualitative feel of who's there and what they're trying to achieve? It's a good question. Many of those local activists in 2009 got engaged responding to national politics, but they really sunk their teeth into local level activity. People decided to attend county commissioner meetings. They wanted to find out who represented them in Congress, get organized, make sure that they were running candidates for office, cause trouble even with the local Republican Party who was already in office and doing things if the Tea Parties weren't happy with that. So there was a great deal of self-education and involvement, really an eagerness to understand local and state politics and what's going on. And it was very interesting for me in 2017 to hear from Tea Partiers who were still active and still causing problems for the local Republicans and to see how local resist groups have formed and do similar activities, but also different activities. So many of the resist groups that we study sort of sprung up after the November 2016 election when groups of people got together and decided that they also needed to do more political activity than whatever they'd been doing prior to November 2016. And very similarly, these new resistors decided to self-educate get involved in um, both national politics and writing letters to Congress, but also get involved in local politics, start running people even for very local offices and trying to generate political knowledge and understanding of those findings. And you really see the impact of this local group activity on both elections, where new energy was driving interest and turnout and attention to politics at all levels. I want to add to the comment about visiting with liberal anti-Trump resistance groups and still convening tea parties in the same day. I've had that experience, too. And they are similar in 
many of the ways Caroline discussed, but there's a, a kind of ritual difference. Tea parties almost always start with everybody standing up to do the Pledge of Allegiance and maybe with a prayer. Resistance meetings are a little bit more like the convening of a college uh, or organizing session. People just come in, greet one another, and then get down to work. So in terms of the tea party, since they have a head start by many years, in what way has their grassroots organizing actually shaped the organizing on the left? They're similar in that these are mass citizens' movements that created groups all over the country in response to an election where a president that alarmed the other side took office in Washington, D.C. at the same time as a Congress of his own party. Barack Obama and the Democrats were very shocking to conservatives in 2008, and many of them started organizing the Tea Party movement in 2009. And in 2016, an even faster reaction occurred on the left, partly because uh, the election of Donald Trump was such a shock to most middle-of-the-road and liberal Americans. The organizing of the resistance groups started within days after Donald Trump was elected. And the massive women's marches that occurred in early 2017, the day after Trump's inauguration, were even larger than the first wave of National Tea Party demonstrations that happened in April of 2009. The Tea Party created a model that some of the organizers of the resistance groups, and particularly those that were linked to the National Indivisible Organization, directly imitated. The people who created the National Indivisible Organization, uh, young former congressional staffers who had witnessed the Tea Party attacking their bosses firsthand in 2009, put out a guide in December of 2016 saying, the left can do what the Tea Party did on the right, here's how you do it. So. When a movement that resembles an earlier one happens second, there's a certain amount of learning that occurs in imitation. And one of the things that we do in our research is look at those fascinating kind of ways in which these movements learn from one another and imitate one another. So in your mind, what do you think are the best methods for organizing the thing that people need to be replicating if you want to organize? What we learn at the grassroots Tea Party and the grassroots resistance is that even after many decades in which American civic life has seemed to be professionally dominated, groups of citizens that volunteer their time and meet recurrently and reach out to shape discussions in their local communities and their state politics can have a national impact too. And that's because American politics is ultimately grounded in districts that elect legislators and congressional representatives and that add up to votes in the Electoral College and, and in the Senate contests that are state by state. What's so interesting about the grassroots components on the left and the right in recent times is in a way ordinary citizens have rediscovered the value of volunteer group formation and activities together. You really get a sense for the many different ways that volunteer grassroots organizing impacts politics. For example, new grassroots groups 
actually generated people to run for office and actually generated people to work on the campaigns of people who are running for office, which we may take for granted that that is a know-how and a capacity that exists already. But in many places where big D democratic presence has receded over recent years, actually having people who are interested in creating that knowledge and reaching out to citizens, turning them out to vote and cultivating political know-how has quite a big impact and changing the long-term makeup of a party and its presence in different places. The resistance organizing in reaction to Donald Trump, both national and particularly across so many local communities of all kinds, even in places that are totally dominated by conservatives and Republicans. And what that has done is to create a presence for Democrats that the Democratic Party itself had lost in many parts of the United States. So these are movements that are in some ways revitalizing and changing the state and local capacities of their respective political parties. We definitely see these new organized volunteers often running for local Democratic Party offices and forcing the old boys to open up to new networks of people because the resistance groups on the left are dominated by about 75 to 90 percent women. And they are insisting on a more open and inclusive style of state and local Democratic Party politics that really boosts all kinds of Democratic candidates, but also creates a new set of issues for Democrats to consider. This week's episode is once again brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. We're so thankful to have Jordan's support and all he does for independent podcasts like ours. If you like insightful interviews, I recommend you check him out after you're done listening to my show this week. He boasts a slate of fascinating guests, and he asks the questions that get to the heart of the matter. As you know, I'm a huge believer in asking those. We all have an amazing story inside of us, and Jordan is super skilled at bringing that story to life for his listeners. Last week, he sat down with a former undercover police officer who worked to bring down the mafia from the inside. It's a thrilling interview that goes well beyond a true crime drama. If you like Future Hindsight, I think you'll like The Jordan Harbinger Show, too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show at jordanharbinger.com. In terms of the 2020 election, what do these grassroots groups have to do in order to make sure that the candidate on the Democratic side is actually going to clinch the White House and that they need to also extend more gains in the House and potentially flip the Senate in addition to, of course, winning state and local offices, because that's a big lift. Yeah. Well, it works better if they tackle it all together. I think the 2018 election was really very telling about the new energy uh, and connections that grassroots resistance groups could bring to Democratic candidacies all over the United States. We've gotten to know the state of Pennsylvania in almost too much detail. It's like the entire United States packed into one state, stretching from the urban political machines of Philadelphia and Pittsburgh through the often kind of 
Republican-leaning suburbs and exurbs until recently, and vast stretches of rural Pennsylvania that are very conservative. Resistance groups formed in all of those places, in 55 out of 67 counties. The activities of these female-led anti-Trump resistance groups often complemented Democratic candidacies, sometimes Democrats running for office in places they hadn't even run or gave new energy to suburban groups that were moving from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party, since suburban women who voted Republican often don't like Donald Trump. So they boosted turnout almost everywhere for Democratic candidates. And even in places where those Democratic candidates didn't win, these groups could be the key, not just to electing down-ballot candidates, but boosting the margins for, say, Joe Biden against uh, Donald Trump and making all the difference in a victory for the Democratic candidate in that crucial swing state. Now, of course, the pandemic is a kind of curveball that's been thrown into all of this because what we found in our questionnaires in 2018 is that most of the resistance groups across the state were going out and knocking on doors weekend after weekend and talking to their neighbors. That knocking on doors is not going to be happening to the same degree, if at all, going into November 2020. So what we're watching now is many of these groups make use of their combination of Facebook pages and pre-existing social connections to set up phone trees or other ways of contacting people in their areas to ask them what they need during the pandemic, remind them to register to vote, remind them to write for an absentee ballot. The bottom line would be that networks matter, and they may matter in new ways in the pandemic period. Can you marshal the networks that people already had to make sure that people vote in the changed circumstances? We follow a few groups in some of the key places. And there really is no strict divorce between political work and aid effort. A lot of community groups who ostensibly exist for political action and political activity for progressive causes pivoted rather quickly, we find, to mutual aid networks, trying to touch base with neighbors, supporting both frontline heroes and first responders and also local businesses. I think we'll continue to see more of that as this pandemic goes into different stages and the extent to which those networks are being leveraged for grassroots groups to reach out and stretch the network and make a useful presence in the community. Yeah, that's a good point, because my next question was going to be about organizational support that the right enjoys through, for example, evangelical churches or even membership of the NRA. I was really struck in the chapter about the organizational support that the president had through the fraternity of police and the Faith and Freedom Coalition and how much they did for him. And that is not very widely discussed. What exists on the left of such scale that could drive voter participation in the way that the evangelical churches or the FOP have done? So I think our understanding of Donald Trump's 2016 victory is often a little bit off. We recognize that this was a, a media impresario who commanded a lot of free television time, and he certainly was and is good at that, and he uses Twitter 
But a lot of observers treated his campaign in 2016 as disorganized. But we pushed a little deeper and looked at what events did Donald Trump go to? We all know about his mass rallies. But occasionally he actually went and talked to a group of people that existed all the time. The groups were usually groups of evangelical Christian right ministers who had big congregations or network congregations and maybe national media operations. Or they were gun groups like the NRA. Or they were meetings of the Fraternal Order of Police, which endorsed Donald Trump, even though it hadn't endorsed Mitt Romney four years before, because Donald Trump spoke up for white police in their clashes with the Black Lives Matter movement. By the way, this is something that's coming up again now, isn't it? And so what we argued and discovered in that work was that those happened to be very tactically well-chosen networks because it wasn't just a bunch of talking heads. It was people who are linked to networks that reach right down into community life in most of non-metropolitan, non-liberal America. Police also have lodges all over the country, and one of our contributors looked statistically at where they were and where the memberships were and found that the endorsement of the Fraternal Order of Police probably generated extra votes above and beyond what you would expect for most Republicans. So Donald Trump cultivated those networks as a way to get his message into everyday life and into networks that could encourage people to turn out to vote. And he and the Republican Party have doubled down on that going into this election. That's why you see Donald Trump making a big point of nominating judges that make the gun people and the anti-abortion crowd happy. That's why you will see him standing up to defend police against protesters. He knows that those networks are the key to turning out extra voters in communities that are a minority of Americans but are very likely to turn up at the polls and whose networks are hard at work now reaching out to offer aid during the pandemic to encourage people to reopen their lives, to attend church again, and certainly to vote and to get absentee ballots. They're going to be voting by mail for sure. So does the left have anything like that? Well, I think we're arguing in this book that the erosion and attacks on labor unions have undercut many of the community ties that the left relied on for many decades. We are seeing some new activity among teachers who are a part of organized life on the left almost everywhere. And we're seeing these new resistance groups that are providing some of these connections. And they link up with African-American churches, which are still sources of connection and mutual aid in communities of color across the United States. Everywhere we go in non-big city areas, there is always the liberal church in town that in many places people know about and sort of jokingly referred to as the liberal church in town. So there are networks of these kinds that extend on all sides of the political spectrum. It's an ongoing question as to how those networks like churches, like labor unions, specifically public sector unions like teachers networks will grow and change over the course of the coming years. Yeah, and interfaith organizations, too. You know, in one North Carolina community I visited, after Donald Trump was elected president, the interfaith efforts stepped up on the sort of moderate side. Uh, So you had 
the few Muslims in town talking more actively with the Jewish leaders and the more liberal Protestants. But the thing that amused me the most was that there were organized atheists in this area of North Carolina where just about everybody goes to church. So they had something to be opposed to. They had spent years, a tiny minority, arguing against religion in public life. After Donald Trump was elected, they decided that they would suspend that cause and make common cause with the liberal Protestants, Muslims, and Jews for the time being in a larger resistance effort. Oh, that's uh, fascinating. If I want to acquire and exert political power as an everyday citizen, what are two things that I could be doing? Find out what groups are there in your community or need to be there and either join them or found one. The three issues that liberal people everywhere seem to care most about are health care, immigrant rights and protecting immigrants and refugees from attack, and fighting global warming. And I think that one of the things these new resistance efforts are doing is creating more of a grassroots in the global warming fight. It's very much a matter of making this an issue that feels real to people in local communities everywhere. The fact of the matter is that elected representatives are not going to move until they are sure that this is an issue that matters to their local constituents who turn out to vote. If you're interested in getting involved, there is absolutely no time like the present. Everyone should assume that things in their community are up to them and We've been amazed to find that local people who decided to become citizen activists and get involved after either the 2008 presidential election or the 2016 presidential election in all types of areas, Tea Partiers in big cities and liberal resistors in the tiniest, most rural areas, pretty quickly found like-minded people. And it's pretty interesting to talk to some of those activists about the new connections and new friendships and the social aspect that has helped them find a community and create a community. Yeah, democracy is better if it's done together. And we've found people who've become very close friends out of discovering that they had some shared values that they wanted to work on. We've lived through a half century in American politics in which we thought we could outsource politics to a bunch of highly paid consultants and people putting together television ads. One of the things that's happening in this highly polarized and highly fraught period, really, in which citizens have mobilized on the right and on the left is that people are rediscovering that politics is about social activity, things done together. That's going to be very true through this election, even though it's happening in a pandemic that's forcing a lot of isolation. I think we're going to see an extraordinary mobilization on both sides leading into this election. Very high turnout. And the reason is because clashing ideas about what America is all about and where it should head as a country are on the ballot this fall, not just in the presidential election, but the Senate election, the congressional elections, state elections. And it's probably one of the most high stakes elections in all of American history, certainly since the 1860 election 
and look at how ordinary Americans are experiencing this extraordinary moment and working together to influence it. Yeah, it's fascinating how many people are now so invested in the civic engagement part as opposed to only watching it on television or maybe only engaging on Twitter, but actually willing to do the organizing, showing up at the IHOP or the brewery and writing postcards, knocking on doors. So last question, looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Oh, I find it very hopeful that American citizens, including citizens I might not agree with, have become more engaged in public life. Everything from learning how gerrymandered district actually divides them up and thinking through what they believe about particular kinds of local and state as well as national public issues and then doing something about it together. I think that's hopeful. I um, believe ultimately that ordinary Americans have some common sense. I'm hopeful about a renewal of American citizenship. And I'm also hopeful that there'll be a new understanding of why honest and effective government matters at all levels. I think this pandemic opens the door to making that case and people finding it believable. So I'm an optimist, but I'm a realistic optimist. I also understand that the United States is, and the world are at choice points and that things could go in very, very ugly directions if the people who have a, a forward-looking and inclusive understanding of democracy do not prevail. Indeed. How about you, Caroline? What makes you hopeful? I am encouraged and inspired by both citizen activists who have taken their engagement to new levels and have, without pay, devoting a ton of time and energy into their activities locally to make a difference and to talk to their fellow citizens about the vision for democracy that people could all share. And a lot of young people are really interested and curious as to how the country got here and are better understanding a possible role that they can have in writing the ship, especially as those of us in my generation have, you know, to live with whatever our country ends up choosing at these next few important crossroads. And I'm continually inspired by young people who are determined to make a difference. Here, here. Well, thank you very much both of you for being on Future Hindsight. Thank you, we enjoyed it. Pleasure talking to you, thanks. My favorite part about this interview is that it clearly shows us how impactful our civic engagement actually is. Whether you're organizing for the Tea Party or the Fraternal Order of Police or for the resistors. It bears repeating that our voice is strongest at the state and local level and that activating our networks, knocking on doors, and getting out the vote works. Boosting the margins in a swing district could be the difference between winning and losing. Michelle Obama just reminded us of this during her DNC convention speech when she referred to the outcome of the 2016 presidential race. She said, In one of the states that determined the outcome, the winning margin averaged out to just two votes per precinct two votes. We are more powerful than we think we are. Vote and engage with democracy. It matters. Next week, our guest 
is Alexander Hurdle Fernandez. He's the author of State Capture, How Conservative Activists, Big Businesses, and Wealthy Donors Reshape the American States and the Nation. He's a political scientist who studies the political economy of the United States with an emphasis on the politics of organized interests and public policy. State governments play an enormously important role in American politics. They control a variety of levers that directly shape the experiences that everyday Americans experience in their daily lives. So for instance, it's state governments, not the federal government, that play a major role in setting labor standards around the minimum wage. Similarly, states control levers around health insurance. States are the key actors in implementing the Affordable Care Act. And lastly, states are in charge of administering elections. We'll be discussing why and how conservatives, and especially the troika of the American Legislative Exchange Council, the State Policy Network, and Americans for Prosperity, have been successful in reshaping the political terrain across U.S. states in recent years. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Hey, Civics Club member. Thank you for your generous support of Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And the associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sayan. Reach out to us with any questions and comments, and we will speak with you next week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.